From who do you seek advice? Is it from anyone who will give it? Or is it from just those you trust? Do you listen to advice? Or do you just place it in the pile of noises you hear? Do you ever take value from the trusted advice of a friend? What can happen if you don't? It's the life of a Dublin man which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In Donnybrook, Dublin, in 1893, a child was born. His name was George McElroy. George was the eldest of eight children born to his parents, Sam and Ellen. Sam was a primary school teacher from Roscommon and Ellen was a teaching assistant from Westmeath. George spent his early life on Beaver Row in Donnybrook, growing up next door to the school he attended. George thoroughly enjoyed school. He worked hard at his studies. Assisted by both his parents, he had a great passion for learning and using this learning for questioning ideas. During the summers, George spent a lot of his time back in his father's home place of Roscommon learning to fly fish with his uncle. When the school year would end, he would leap on a train and head back west. After primary school, George went to Dundalk to further his education in the Educational Institute in Louth. Here he again enjoyed learning and displayed to his teachers just how bright he was on a regular basis. It was at their recommendation that George went to third level education in Rossa College in Dublin. When this course ended, he picked up a job as a civil servant administrator. It wasn't a very exciting job, or one which paid particularly well, but it paid his bills and kept a roof above his head. As George trundled through life, concentrating on the next day's work instead of world events, Similarly to many of us today, through no fault other than the pressures of life, across the water in mainland Europe, the ancient royal houses were flexing their soon-to-be outdated muscles. To cut a long story short, an Austrian was killed by a Serb in Bosnia. Russia supported Serbia and Austria supported Bosnia. Germany supported Austria, so they looked to invade Russian allies France. With France awaiting invasion through Belgium, Belgium sought support from Britain. So everybody went to war. And with that, the war required bodies to fill the fields of Europe. Promises were made to the young men of Europe of glory and riches to be enjoyed by all when this short tussle was over. Short and glorious it was not. 
George and 200,000 other Irishmen were promised many things in exchange for their time at war. They were promised wealth, honour and the assistance towards the freedom of Ireland should they take part in the fight. George looked at his yearly earnings and at the riches he was promised. He looked at his daily routine and he looked at the adventure he was promised. He looked at his safety in Ireland and measured it against the false odds of death which were described to him at recruitment rallies across Ireland. It was for these reasons that in 1914 George enlisted in the army just one month after the war began and before anybody knew what they were facing into. This was not to be the typical war that the people of the time were used to. Modern death machines were beginning their lives on the battlefields of Europe. Men were marching blindly into what was to come. To place the early days of war into context. So unprepared were the armies for what was to come the French arrived on horses with swords and fabric hats instead of helmets. The Germans arrived with machine guns. George was first enlisted in the motorcyclist section of the Royal Engineers. He arrived in France at the end of September 1914. he quickly discovered just how horrific this war would be. Instantly, he knew all the promises were lies. On a nightly basis, he would sit in the trenches and listen to the young men wounded and stuck in no man's land howling for their mothers. He would fall asleep and wake up to the sounds of soldier after soldier pleading for help. To place your head above the trench to see if you could help would lead to an instant death. In the daytime he would watch thousands of young men climb out of their trenches and charge at the merciless and non-discriminating hail of death that reigned across the battlefield. Running low on supplies, George and the others in the trenches would have captured the rats which were eating their friends, some not quite dead yet, and boiled them. The rats were boiled to the point where their fat could be used for cooking. Soon soldiers on both sides began to show each other mercy. Neither side had wanted to be there. Shots were aimed wide of their mark and there was no great desire to go above the trenches. A Christmas day truce was arranged and symbols of peace were shared. Furious by the mercy shown to their fellow man, soon the leaders of the war, far from the action, decided to introduce a weapon most foul to the action. Mustard gas. The gas would be fired across to the opposition's trenches and there was a limited amount of seconds for the soldiers to gather their gas masks and set them securely on their heads. There are reports of soldiers fighting each other to the death for their masks. 
there are also reports of soldiers pushing off those begging for their masks as they lost fingernails clawing at their necks in a desperate attempt to breathe. Whilst serving with the Royal Irish Regiment, George was sitting with a group of men from home and discussing their time at war and what they might do should they ever get home. As they chatted, a cry ran out from lower down their lines. Boys, gas, gas, gas. The clamour began and it was every man for himself. George tried quickly to get his mask on, but he wasn't the fastest. He inhaled some of the evil fumes, but eventually he managed to secure his mask on safely. When the panic ended and the screaming stopped, George was taken to his superiors as a result of his inhalation of the fumes. He was temporarily sent back to Dublin to a medical facility to recover from the attack. While in Dublin, George was visited by family and friends who he told about the war. They were all shocked to hear of the horrors of Europe and of the brutalities of mankind. It was hard for them to fully believe what one man could do to another for survival. It was during this time that George heard gunfire across his city. He rushed out to see what it was. He was confused to discover that it was not a German attack on Dublin, but an Irish one. The Easter Rising had begun. With limited numbers in Dublin, the British Army ordered George and the others who'd returned from war for treatment to march on the GPO. George refused. He was not willing to point his gun at a fellow Irishman. As punishment, George was sent to a southerly garrison and taken from the comforts of Dublin. When deemed healthy enough to be sent to his death, George was sent back to the war. That June, George relinquished his commission in the Royal Irish Regiment when awarded a cadetship at the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich, from which he graduated in February 1917 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Royal Garrison Artillery. Knowing now of the horrors of the trenches and the eye-to-eye -eye battle on the ground, George looked to the sky for his next adventures of war. In March 1917, he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps and was posted to the Central Flying School in Wiltshire. George survived his rigorous and dangerous fighter pilot training and returned to France in August 1917. He had only spent a few short weeks learning to fly and to operate a plane, but such was the need for pilots that his qualifications were pushed through with little resistance. Many of those he trained with lost their lives in training or in the first few days of their war due to their lack of an ability to control a plane. 
George struck one of the few pieces of luck that could be had in France however, as he was assigned to the command of Balancholic Corkman Edward McManock. It was Mick who christened George with the nickname MacIrish. George's first few days in the plane were less than impressive. In his first few air battles he failed to take down any enemy flights and crash landed several times. In effect, George had taken five Allied planes out of the war before any enemy planes. Remarkably, however, he managed to walk away safely from each of his crashes. When it looked as though George was going to be sent home for further training, his friend Mick stood up for him and gave the promise that he would mentor his fellow Irishman. That he did and George learned a tremendous amount from Mick. Under his tutorship, George's abilities in the air soon changed. He became known as an aggressive dogfighter in the air and he was soon recognised as someone who did not care for the odds of a battle. In a couple of weeks, under Mick's guidance, George went from being one of the worst pilots to one of the best in the British Army. By February he had taken down 11 German planes. He was promoted to flight commander and given the temporary rank of captain. By March he was up to 18 kills and he was awarded a military cross. His ranking and reputation continued to soar. That April, as George downed his 27th German plane, he lost control of his own aircraft and was sent flying into a tree. He was badly injured in the crash, but his war was not over just yet. Whilst recovering, he was awarded a bar to his military cross. George rushed back to his plane before his recovery was completed and quickly brought his victories to 30, with two victories against observation balloons. That July, George was recognised as one of the most important members of the Royal Air Force as he recorded 17 victories in the month. It was at the time one of the most successful months for a fighter pilot. Later that month, whilst fighting two German planes by himself alone in the sky, George was sent to a crash landing. He walked away with only scratches. The cause of the crash was following one of the German planes low and into ground fire territory. When he returned to his base, Mick tore into George for going so low. He was furious with George for being so careless just to get a victory. At the end of that month, Mick was fighting a German pilot in the air. He managed to clip the wing of the German but saw it going low towards its own lines for safety. 
Mick had seen that the German plane was checking for where the Allied trenches were. He knew that if the German returned to his lines, a gas attack was a certainty for those in the trenches. Risking his own life, Mick went after the plane. He ducked and weaved around the ground fire and managed to take the German down, ensuring the message was never passed on. As he rose into the sky for safety, his plane was hit and he was blown to pieces. When George heard of Mick's passing, he was receiving his second bear to his military cross. One of only 10 pilots to receive such a distinction. In the days after Mick's death, George rose into the sky again and claimed further victories. On the fifth day after Mick's death, George was reported missing. A few days later, it was learned that George had swooped too low behind enemy lines and was killed by ground fire. Today, George rests in Plot IC1 at the Leventai Military Cemetery in Lagargue, Northern France. The music for this episode was written, produced and performed by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish and leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anam Dunn, Gurav Mahakut, Slán